So remember, last week I did talk about this, the mystery of the Trinity, and then that third person of the Trinity, and how um, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal spirit. It's not the spirit of the age. It's not the spirit of goodwill. It's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person as fully distinct as the person of the Father and the person of the Son. We'll talk a little bit about that um, towards the end today, but I want to begin with this idea of mystery, and we talked about the mystery of the Trinity um, last week, and there is a lot of mystery also within the world of art. Yeah, come on forward if you can't see it. Um, Within the world of art and creativity, and Christians are not the only ones to recognize this. Actually, we see a lot of non-Christians hypothesizing about what this is, and there's sort of this kind of pagan idea surrounding spirituality and art. So as Christians, how do we understand and approach that? Well, one way to understand that is in reading, you know, this guy is not necessarily a Christian, Robert Woodnow, but he's talking about the way of the artist and this creative spirituality and what is behind it. And as we try to understand, where is the overlap within this? Um, He writes, art comes from an unknown domain and kindles in the breast an inner bliss, a higher significance than feeble words confined to the expression of banal earthly pleasures can communicate. Did you get that? Art has this sense of mystery about it. Just think about it. A poem, and he gives an example in his book, a poem um, can approach to some of the mystery by going in and then going out by giving a sketch of something that if we just wrote it out, Um, in words and told the story fully from beginning to end, we would not find that sense of longing. We would not incline ourselves to look and really look and see. We would not do that part of filling in the blanks um, ourselves. I think of that with um, Impressionism as a a line within, um, as a form of artwork. Uh, My sister, I remember she she was an art major at Amherst College. Um, about 15 to 20 years ago. I don't know. T- I don't really have a sense of time. Anyway, she was there. She was studying art. And I remember early on, she'd been in the art room all, all day long. Somehow she managed to get all of her work done. So all she did during high school was stay in the art room. And she would throw pottery and she would draw and she would do um, prints and things like that. And she would paint. And she really has developed into being an oil painter um, for the last. Um, several years throughout all of our adulthood and she paints these incredible impressionistic oil paintings of landscapes in particular but she um, from the beginning she didn't like impressionism until she realized about five years in that she herself was an impressionist and her her work is truly amazing because you if you stand about a foot away from her work you can't quite see how it all comes together But then when you step back and you look at it from afar, your own imagination is intrigued. Your own imagination begins to fill in the lines that haven't been totally connected or um, the brush strokes that haven't been realistically drawn um, or painted. And you see that. So there is this sense of mystery. Art says the unsayable. Art expresses within nonverbal ways, most usually it's nonverbal, an inexplicable longing, a mystery, what cannot be seen um, or fully known, and an ineffability, what cannot be defined and spoke or spoken of are the hallmarks of the spiritual. We see that in this quote 
Stephen Guthrie is a Christian and he looks theologically at this idea. He says, essentially, how interesting is it that both these philosophical aestheticians, again, those who are thinking about theory of art, and modern theologians since Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher is the father of modern liberal Christianity. So not really, we're not really huge fans of him here at the Advent, but he, in the 19th century, he um, began, because of the Enlightenment, he began to um, highly um, r- remove Christianity from its historical grounding and say that Christianity was primarily not necessarily a set of rational truths, but an experiential um, feeling. And so that's, he did, did us a disservice by removing that religious experience that we have through faith from the historical reality. In fact, they're both tied together, and so we would reassert that against him. But he finds it interesting that both these philosophical aestheticians and modern theologians have a tendency to locate both art and spirituality in the domain of mystery, which is that which cannot be fully known or seen, and in ineffability that which cannot be defined or spoken of or quantified. How interesting is that? Any thoughts about that before I give you another quote? Yeah, please. So if the mystery goes away, then the art goes away also? I actually, and I have another slide on this if we get to it, um, I do think that sometimes when it's all laid out for you, it's less beautiful. You don't feel it as much, and you aren't intrigued as much to find out more. Think about that with, um, and I actually think it's still good art. It can still be good art. I think of that, again, my mode of operation is to think about some of my favorite imaginative novels, which is just a, a type of art form that I just particularly love. And if you've heard me talk about Tolkien or C.S. Lewis at all, you know that I do love them. So I love C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and I love J.R.R. Tolkien's um, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. But when you look at them, Tolkien actually criticized Lewis they were friends, and they compared each other's work, and they read each other's work. And he said, Lewis, you did all the work for them. You made it so clear. Aslan is Jesus. He dies. He rises again. Where's the mystery? Where is the art form within it? And I love Lewis's sense of imagination, and there are so many other imaginative elements. But he really is, especially because it's for children, he really is trying to bring an allegory. He's giving them um, connecting points all along the way with the Christian story. Whereas Tolkien, if you were to look at Christian themes and Christian um, Christ figures within Tolkien's work, you'll find them at every turn. He just doesn't connect the dots for you. And so you have to incline a little bit more and look a little bit more. So I wouldn't say Lewis's work is bad art. It's just different. And it has I wouldn't say it's as great as Tolkien's is. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. You can disagree with me. That's well, fine. I can ask you later another okay. question. Yeah. If mystery of the spirit, yeah. now the Holy Spirit goes away, are we doing some kind of blasphemous uh, or disservice to Christianity? Yeah, if the right. mystery, if everything becomes super obvious. Not everything. Yeah, right. that's a good and question to ponder. There's an idea that if you try to remove the mystery uh-huh. from the Holy Spirit, somehow you're 
Yeah, and and actually, that's what we're seeking not to do here. I'm I'm digging in. I'm looking at the Holy Spirit because I think all too often we're afraid of the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Much like the Trinity, we don't even begin to explore Him because we're afraid that we won't be able to understand who He is or what He can do in our lives or what Scripture says about Him. And so that's one of the things I'm going to get to. That that there is this idea that the Holy Spirit, and that's what this particular author Guthrie is going to say. Though the Holy Spirit, though there's this sense of mystery about the working of the Holy Spirit, what we see throughout Scripture is He does work in specific times at specific ways, in specific ways. So let's let's get to that. I'm gonna. Um, you can just look at that while it's behind me. Again, this idea of mystery and art. Um, and again, if you're thinking back to last week in the Trinity, this hopefully will help you with the Trinity. Um, Madeline Lingle wrote, This is the irrational season when love blooms bright and wild. Had Mary been filled with reason, there'd have been no room for the child. If she didn't believe in the impossible, how could she have said, Be it to me according to your will? Right. Okay. So the mysterious Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit is certainly mysterious. Um, and the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled in certain ways. One of the words um, used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach, I'm going to say it, unlike, I'm going to take a stab at it, but I won't say it as well as Mark Chinolet. Um, the And that word means breath. Um, something that gives life. Just think about our breath. Um, we can we we breathe. Sometimes we'll hold our breath and we'll try to stop it, but we can't actually hold our own breath for longer than a little while, can we? We actually do not have control over our breath. Our breath is a gift given to us, and in Scripture we see that it's a gift given to us right at the very begin of beginning of human life. In Scripture, in Genesis one, it's the breath of God that's given to the man of dust, Adam, that gives life to Adam and Eve. We see it, um, so this idea of the breath of God being the Holy Spirit, we see it in John 3, 8, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind, and by the wind he means the the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, the word also is breath or wind or spirit. means the same thing. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we see that sense of there being this wildness to God's Holy Spirit. And um, we'll see it in other ways. Certainly, the Holy Spirit breaks certain boundaries that those first disciples assumed would be in place all throughout. When we see in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is given, and we're going to devote a whole Sunday to, um, to the um, fall of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, um, the Lord says through the prophet Joel, and Peter takes this prophecy and uses it to understand, he employs it in his sermon, to understand what is going on when the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. He says, um, according to the words of Joel, in the voice of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And Paul says it also in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there is that unifying factor of the Holy Spirit breaking down um, the boundaries that are put in place by our flesh, the boundaries of gender, the boundaries of social status, 
the boundaries of age uniting us in him. And that doesn't mean that suddenly we're not um, American or female or whatever. It's saying that, no, we are ourselves in our specific um, specificity, and yet we're all united in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit breaks down those boundaries that would keep us from fellowship and unity with the other, with each other. Also, the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit disrupting plans. Philip in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip the deacon, who's amazing. He goes down on the road. He finds this Ethiopian eunuch. And we see him run up alongside the Ethiopian eunuch who's in his chariot. That means he's running really fast um, somehow, miraculously, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He runs really fast. He explains to him what's going on in the book of Isaiah. The Ethiopian eunuch says, What's to prevent me from being baptized? And they stop right there on the side of the road, and Philip baptizes him. But then, and you would think he'd want to stay there and do some real discipleship. Then the Holy Spirit takes Philip away and whisks him away. Um, The Holy Spirit changes human plans and redirects us. Um, Much like the wind will redirect a sailboat. If you're a sailor at all, you know you always have to keep um, a finger up to figure out, all right, which way the wind is blowing. I'm really bad at that, which means I'm a really bad sailor. When we have family sailboat races, I'm the ballast. <laughs> and I watch and I try to learn every time and I try to figure out where the wind is coming from and um, I'm still just the ballast. So the Holy Spirit disrupts plans. We see that elsewhere in the book of Acts. We also see the Holy Spirit bringing surprises throughout Scripture. Um, what about the surprise of the virgin birth? Um, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is It says in Luke that it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, What a surprise. Who would have thought that God would have um, broken through the rules of biology to bring about the birth of his own son? Um, Who would have thought that Lazarus would have been raised from the dead? Um, Never mind Jesus himself crucified and risen after three days. Who would have thought that the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples in such power at Pentecost so that they would speak in languages they'd never learned? so that they would perform miracles. Who would have thought even um, that the Holy Spirit would have thrown down the number one persecutor of the, of the church on his face in the middle of the road so that he would see the light and see and realize that Jesus Christ was the Lord, um, was crucified and risen, and that all those that he was, he was so wrong in persecuting those newborn baby Christians, and he had no idea. Um, the Holy Spirit brings all of these surprises Um, But there are very specific ways in which we know the Holy Spirit through Scripture. And the Holy Spirit, above and beyond all else, and we're going to devote a whole Sunday to this, the Holy Spirit serves to communicate objective truth. And I put it with a capital T. There is an objective truth. So this movement of the Spirit is not just subjective. It's not just um, uncontrollable or breaking boundaries willy-nilly or disrupting plans. It's all according to God's plan even if we don't know what that plan is in advance. And the Holy Spirit serves to bring the disciples of Jesus into all truth, into the objective truth of who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Okay, I'm going to take a breath. Any questions about that before we go on to creation? The mystery. Yeah. Okay. When we look at creation, we see the Holy Spirit present there from the very beginning in Genesis 1. And we talked about this last week a little bit. Does anybody want to read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, who can see it? If you can can see it, kudos to you. Yeah, go ahead, John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Remember how last week we said that here at the very beginning of all creation, um, God the Father is there, God the Holy Spirit is there hovering over the face of the waters, and God the Word, the second person of the Trinity, is there as the Lord God speaks um, like a mirror out from himself comes this entity of his word. And that's how um, the Jewish rabbis understood the word of God, the wisdom of God that comes out from God's mouth and accomplishes his purposes uh, um, in creation. There is Jesus Christ before he was incarnate, bringing about all of creation along with the Holy Spirit. Genesis shows us that in the act of creation, the Holy Spirit, his role is to hover over the chaos. He hovers like a brooding hen over all that is not God, churning and tumultuous, so that out of it, um, together, the three persons bring beauty and order. This idea of Genesis and the Holy Spirit generating out from chaos something beautiful is something that we see in our lives as Christians on this side of the cross, that the Holy Spirit um, upon us generates out from us life, new life, um, that regeneration of our own spirits, where all that is broken um, has been forgiven through the cross of Christ. And then he takes that and he works with it. And he produces these beautiful good works that we manage to do despite ourselves, despite our fallen flesh. Somehow the Holy Spirit generates from within us these beautiful things. And we're going to talk about that on our last um, of the six. But when we look at that, we see that one of these ideas of generating is that the Holy Spirit also not only generates good works, but generates acts of beauty. And what is truly good art but an act of beauty and an act of truth? We see word and spirit combined elsewhere um, in Scripture um, to understand this idea of creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, from Psalm 33, 6. Um, we see then going on, not only is um, the Holy Spirit there at the very beginning of all creation bringing order and beauty out of the chaos of all that, um, that was not before there was creation, so too um, the Holy Spirit is involved in our own um, recreation and in our own creation as human beings. So we're going to look first at Ephesians 2 and then we're going to go back to Genesis 1 if you can hold on to your hat. Here um, in Ephesians 2, does someone want to read um, verses 8 through 10 for me, which are all that's up there. Okay, great. Thanks, Dwight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, his, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that he would walk in them. Oh, so good. Thank you. We are his workmanship. We've been saved um, through faith. This is um, God's grace. It's by grace through faith. It's God's gift to us. And out of that gift to us, he recreates us into his workmanship. And this, this actual noun in the Greek sounds very much like um, a piece of art because the word is poeia, from which we get poem. We are God's masterpiece. That's the very literal definition of that word in the Greek. We are his chef d'oeuvre. 
if you want to go French, and think of that chief work of art. We are the pinnacle of his creation. How much more at our redemption and our recreation are we created, recreated into being someone beautiful for God by his own grace. So out of our redemption, we see we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has a role in that, just as he has a role in our creation at, um, at the beginning of all things. Let me just see. Let me go back to... Um, oh, you know, we see this. I like this Francis Schaeffer quote. I'm going to read it, and I forgot why I put it here, but I'll tell you why in just a minute. Because the Holy Spirit dwells with believing people of all professions, the Christian life is to be an artwork. The Christian life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. Isn't that nice? Whether you're an artist or not, your life is a work of art from the master artist. So how much more for artists who believe in the Lord that their work would be a part of the outflowing of this um, beauty and truth in the gospel? In the Genesis story, we see um, this idea, too, of our, um, our being made as men and women in the image of God, after, our own, after the likeness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Isn't it neat that there's two of us, three of them, um, they're a community, we're a community, especially as mirrored in the bond of marriage, in that unity that comes from being two separate persons united in one flesh. Part of this idea that we're created in God's image is that we're created to create. In our ability to create beautiful things, whether it's a beautiful flower arrangement um, or a beautiful paper or a beautiful, um, I can't think, someone help me. What else do you create? Think of the things you create in your job. Maybe it's a brief. Maybe it's a legal brief. And you've worked long and hard on it and you think it's a beautiful thing. Hopefully it is a beautiful thing if you've spent so much time on it. Um, That idea of all of these things that we create, those we do because we're made in the image of the creator. And not just means that we are beings in relationship, but we are also beings who mimic what our creator does. We follow him just like children making um, sandcastles in the sand. We mimic our father in trying to create beauty in the world. Colin Gunton is um, a wonderful theologian, and I didn't put this up there for you, so you're going to have to bear with me. He has a great quote that says, Just as nature is that which comes from the hand of the creator, like creation, so culture is all the things that human beings do to, with, and in that created world. With this in mind, then, the mandate in Genesis 1.28 could be a command to engage with the created order, this command to have dominion and to um, multiply. It's a demand to engage with the created order so as to enable it to join with us in the praise of our creator. The Spirit enables us in this work, and this empowerment by the Holy Spirit then occurs to the glory of God. What are the things of culture? You might think of high culture, and you might think of a symphony. You might think of going to the ballet. Um, but there are other aspects of our culture that we are constantly creating, even if it's um, the latest film or even if it's a television show. That's low art. There's high art <laughs> and low art. And we think, oh, the comic strip is not as beautiful as the symphony. 
but a really beautiful and true comic strip is just as much part of our culture as a beautiful and true symphony. And all are beautiful because all mean that um, us creatures are creating beautiful and true things. We are um, exercising um, that fact that we are created in God's image. Any thoughts or questions about that? Before I move on. Think about the things that you create every day. You might not consider them art, but they're a part of your being made in the image of God the Creator. I'm starting with the negative. I'm going back to your question. What art is not? Before we go to talk about what art is and can be. Um, I do think that there's, um, and this I experienced because, you know, having been an, an artist, having been an actor and writer and director when it comes to film and theater, when I went to seminary, I thought for sure I was leaving it all behind me. thought for sure this is it, this is the end, I'm only going to serve God in his church, I'm not going to create anything, as if, as if all the creating stops, the creating continues, thank goodness, I'd, I'd be lost without getting to create. Um, but this idea, when I got to seminary, I found very often that people wanted to understand my calling, the vocation that I had had as an artist. They then wanted to translate it into, um, into well, then you can create something. You can make a really good sermon drama for us. You can make a really good skit about Jesus because you have this ability to create. Isn't it ironic that that's, often, that, that's what I did last week? Right? Uh, I love the irony of God. But, but what I was revolting against when I heard them say that was what they meant was you can tell the Christian message, message through your medium, through this art form, um, so that people specifically for this evangelistic purpose. And that is a good and a right and a joyful thing within the context of, mer- of worship. But sometimes that one-for-one one allegory of this is that and this is that is not going to move someone outside of the church as much as the complexity of a work of art that is non-allegorical, that's created by a Christian who is, through the act of creating this work of art, intending to worship their creator, intending to reflect and respond to God the Father's own um, creation and recreation of us as individuals and as artists. Does that make sense to you? Do you want to counter it at all, please? I love countering. Um, so here's just a theory. Christian artists do an injustice to their faith and to their art when they explicitly communicate the entirety of the Christian message through the means of their art. And I would even add explicitly as a way of moving people to response. Um, if this intention is, I want to get you so that suddenly you can say the sinner's prayer, and I'm going to manipulate you along the way until you, your emotions get to that place where you can say the sinner's prayer, then is that a thing of beauty? Um, even though you're pointing towards the truth, you've lost the beauty along the end. And so real, beautiful, glorious artwork that is made by Christians that will eventually point people towards their Lord and Maker is both beautiful and true. And here's my concrete example. And I, I've experienced this in, in um, theater. If I tell, uh, hey, you, go stare at the ceiling. What are you talking about? Why would I go stare at the ceiling? But if I stand here, and I just stare at the ceiling, how many people do you think are going to come over and like, what in the world is she looking at? And start looking up at the ceiling. <laughs> They're going to wonder, what, what in the world is she looking at? And so too as an artist, if your eyes are on the Lord and you're creating out of that response of his own beauty, his own grace extended to you, what you're going to find is other people, where is that coming 
from. That's gorgeous. I want that. Instead of just telling them to go and do. That's about that. Art is play. This is one of my favorite ideas around art. That um, we are children of our Heavenly Father. And the vocation, here's this great quote um, from G.K. Chesterton. The vocation of an artist undertaken by a Christian begins with humility, as do all vocations. But especially for the artist, humility means approaching the work in the way a child approaches his play. The call to imitate the child is essentially a call to humility. And to humility, a true sense of my unworthiness in relation to the creator and the created universe, that is the key to wonder, the door to the imagination. And then from that place of the imagination comes wonderful things. This I experienced in college when I was um, when I was in a theater group. You know, we had to audition into our theater group, and there were 40 of us. You couldn't be in a show unless you were already in the group. So that kept people actually from only wanting to be on stage. Everybody only wants to be on stage. Not everybody, but in a theater group, everybody only wants to be on stage. No one wants to be backstage hammering nails and, and uh, painting the scenery and sewing the costumes. And so what this group provided was a sense of community where we would each do everything and we would rotate around. We each had to serve on a crew. We each had to um, audition for shows. So you also couldn't be shy and retiring behind the scenes. And it was such a wonderful thing. The best thing about this was that twice a week, as a part of my class, I couldn't believe that this is part of my college curriculum, but we would go to this place, to this big room that would fit all 40 of us, and we would just play. We just played for an hour and a half. We just played. And that play was understood as being part of the preparation to create the roles that we would create on stage. Um, and it was, uh, it's hard to even describe what that playing was like, um, but it would involve um, relaxation. So I was the most relaxed I've ever been when I was an actor. It was great. Um, forced relaxation or just that time and space where it said, great, now you're going to relax and we're going we're gonna to just improv. We're just going to play around with this idea. We would literally come in the door and after 15 or 20 minutes of warming up, basically our um, leader would say, okay, today you're all cats. <laughs> That's what I mean by play. And we would just, all right, we're all cats. I mean, and you didn't think, I'm a cat. You were just like, you were a cat, suddenly. You just had to, suddenly, you're a cat. And, and it was some of, the most, some of the most beautiful creativity came out of that time of playing twice a week for nine months. Art, um, yeah, please, I'd love that. Uh, I was just going to say, one of the joys of grandparenting as yeah. opposed to parenting is you watch little kids do things and no, 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 you, you want to say that. You don't do it that way, you do it this way. But then as grandparents, you just watch them and let them do the, as long as it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. you know, let them do the wrong thing. Yeah. And then they play around and they do all sorts of things. It's amazing. You look, wow, look at that. And you think about the way their minds and their imaginations work, mm -hmm. and suddenly you're humbled by it, aren't you? And, and it's just a joyful thing to watch and to engage in. And there have been studies, and don't ask me to cite them, but there have been studies that have been done that show that that playful, imaginative interaction is actually 
goes far um, more for their development than learning all their ABCs and learning all their um, ahead of the game. You know, don't don't try to categorize everything just yet. Let them use um, the fork as a hair comb, like in The Little Mermaid, or whatever it is that they need to do, um, because it's going to spark their imagination and beautiful things will result. Um, thank you for adding that. That's that's great. Um, returning back to this idea of beauty out of chaos, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, true creativity involves delineating meaning out of the chaos of experience. Do you hear that echo from creation of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters? In the creative moment, the artist who makes herself available and open to the Holy Spirit gives up the chaos of her own experience, the grief, the joy, the pain, and the hope to God as a gift, saying, take it and use it. And God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can bring order and beauty out of the turmoil of a person's life and use a person, an artist, and a Christian to communicate his own love to other people. Art is expressive, but it also must communicate where there's no benefit for the recipient. And the artist, as G.K. observes, the artist does ultimately exhibit himself as being intelligent by being intelligible. And so part of that self-communication of the artist comes about through that interaction of the chaos, the pain and the suffering. And out of that chaos comes the beauty of a work of truth. Um, Any thoughts about that and the Holy Spirit's role in that? Even if you don't consider yourself an artist, you can have that too. Don't worry. (laughs) That's part of just being a Christian, taking all of what we have all of the chaos of what we have and turning it to the Lord and say, make something beautiful with me. Okay, finally. Art is worship. An artwork can be a doxology in itself. Not just in the creating of it, but in the receiving of it. How many of us delight to come like tonight to Evensong. What a beautiful way to worship. It's a beautiful, I just, when I have the opportunity to be able to come and sit and allow the music to wash over me. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And for me, that's different than singing on Sunday morning. I sing a lot on Sunday morning. But sitting there passively and allowing it to wash over me. Going to an art gallery and seeing a new exhibition of one of my favorite artists, I get lost in the wonder. And I give thanks to God, the creator of all, for the way he has been able to create something beautiful through his creature. Um, and we see this. Um, idea. We see this idea in two parts of scripture where art can be worshipped. Um, we see it in the Old Testament, and I'm going to next week we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's empowerment of certain individuals in the Old Testament. Would you believe it? The Holy Spirit, when you see the Holy Spirit operating explicitly in the Old Testament, He is there to empower by His anointing, by His outward presence upon a human being, to empower four kinds of people: prophets, priests, and kings. We're going to talk about those three next week. But the fourth one is an artist. The fourth one is this artist Bezalel. I'll I'll read this one so no one has to do all the Old Testament names. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for every setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. He must have been a master craftsman if he was able to do all those different media 
work with all those different media to create the beauty of the tabernacle, which was where the Lord would be worshipped by the people of Israel. And even when we walk into our own nave, and we see all the beauty around us, the beautiful wood, the beautiful stone, the beautiful stained glass, all of it is meant to draw our eyes upward, isn't it? To draw our eyes to the Lord on the origin of all of that beauty and the origin of the truth that we're going to hear um, from the pulpit, Lord willing. Um, so this idea, God empowers artists specifically so that we might give glory to him. Um, this is a sign of God's relationship with us and our relationship with him. This is a sign of restoration. And we see this also in Psalm 29, this idea of worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That holiness that's created um, by the Holy Spirit, um, despite ourselves, despite our human flesh, acting upon us from outside, um, springing up within us as we have um, his Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit generates within us this holiness and then outwardly allows us to create works of beauty and truth. And so where does that leave us at the end of the day? Um, Because the Holy Spirit, and this goes back to last week, because the Holy Spirit is a person, not this um, impersonal spirit out there that sort of flows around and can't be contained and no one knows where he is and everybody has him in the world. No, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Jesus and God the Father. Because the Spirit is a person who encounters us, the proper thing, and really the only the polite thing, is to respond. Just like someone saying, hello. You don't say, you know, silently and walk past them. And, um, you don't say nothing. Um, the proper thing, the polite thing, is to respond, to say something, whether in paint or tones or words on paper, however inadequate, about the one who meets us and remakes us. And that's part of our role as creatures, is simply to express to communicate in return in thanksgiving for all that he's done for us. Um, that's what we do when we create beautiful works of art. That's what we do when we get up in the morning and go to work. All of that is a part of this response of thanksgiving and gratitude to the one who has created and recreated us in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work in and through us. We thank you, Lord, for your work on the cross and how Um, none of our recreation, none of our redemption, none of the beauty that you grant us to even be a part of creating is possible without your own work there on our behalf. And so we ask, Lord, create in us a new song and give us the grace to sing your praises um, through the means that you've given us, through the gifts that you've given us, as specific as they are to us. Um, Lord Jesus, would you be glorified by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.